Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I'm sure many of you have watched the implosion of Disney that has been ongoing. It's movie after movie after movie, television show after television show, just completely bombs, makes no money back. They get terrible press. I think a lot of us remember this company as something that was kind of a beloved property from our childhood. And then you watch them pick up all these other studios. It looked like they were going to be a media juggernaut forever, but that's clearly not happening. And so I want to talk to John Doyle. He's got a great uh, YouTube channel, Hack Off Commie. He's got a number of good videos on entertainment, specifically a hilarious one on Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. But I wanted to talk to him today, today about Disney because I want to know, you know, was Disney always this family-friendly organization? Uh, is this really just a case of, you know, go woke uh, and end up broke? And is there something that conservatives can do about this? Is there a future for conservative media after companies like this fail? So, John, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I'm glad that I could take a break from being the uh, the MLK experts to be the Disney expert for today's broadcast. Yeah, I, I have already done a episode on MLK like you did. Uh, and we'll probably get to that a little bit here at the end of the show, just because it is the holiday. We should celebrate. Yeah, we Right. Yeah, the MLK thing is something I have to do every year just to show my membership card. Yeah, I'm one of us. But really what I enjoy is the more pressing cultural issues of our time, such as analysis of Disney films, things yeah. adjacent to those. <laughs> All right, man. So I guess my first question is this. I remember growing up, and I'm I'm obviously older than you, but I think probably both of us at some point had memories of Disney as kind of this family-friendly, everybody can get together and watch these movies. The Disney animated films were something that you're, you know you and your, your siblings would watch over and over and over again, wear the tape out or the DVD, depending on how old you are. And suddenly we have this scenario where the this beloved franchise that was building all this momentum, picking up all these studios like Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilms and making money hand over its fist, just seemed like they were printing money all over the place. All of a sudden they're stumbling. What's going on with this? Is this a situation where they just picked up the message? They started spouting all the kind of rainbow pride stuff and that's what brought their downfall. What's going on? I would like to assign blame to that. I really would like to believe that when companies go woke, they resultantly go broke. But I just don't really see that happening. I mean, I remember even covering a headline on the News and Why It Matters program hosted by our friend Sarah Gonzalez, where the headlines that the conservative outlets were running with were, oh, Disney going broke, you know, they lose X amount of uh, revenue in Q3 or something because they went woke. And then you read the articles that these publishers are putting out, and they were even like conceding that it was because they lost some license to stream some sport in India or something. And, you know, they're losing market share to these other streaming services, which are producing content that's like equally woke, I guess, in terms of the trajectory. So I would like to assign blame to that, but I just don't see it. I think it's probably more so. I mean, I guess you could say this is an element of wokeness. Uh, these companies hiring, you know, diversity hires, people who subscribe to these ideologies, and they're just incapable of producing good content because... You know, I, I look back at even like Toy Story 2, which I rewatched recently, and there's a part in Toy Story 2 where uh, Jesse, the cowgirl, does something that Buzz Lightyear finds to be particularly attractive, and then his wings shoot out and deploy, which as a 24-year-old, I'm seeing that now, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not exactly family-friendly content. So there's always been these sort of like innuendos, I think, that have been inserted into these programs to sort of wink at the parents, wink at adults watching. I wonder how much of it is just our inability to produce good content in general anymore, this sort of like cultural stagnation where because everything is so on demand now, like when you or myself were watching movies or watching television 20 years ago, it was decided by networks. And, you know, you tune in at four o'clock to watch this show, five o'clock to watch this show. But now because everything is so on demand, now you've got shows that are competing with, you know, shows that were out 20, 30 years ago, movies that were out 20, 30 years ago. Uh, even in music, it's the same thing where you can't really make something that's going to be better than Led Zeppelin or better than uh, early SpongeBob uh, if you grew up in my generation. And so it's just bad content, bad programming all around. And I think they do try to ornament it with a lot of like the diversity stuff, the LGBT stuff. But I think just in general, it's bad. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think your mic might be hitting something uh, as you're moving around there. Just so you know, but... the, the CIA and Mossad <laughs> intercepting the transmission to prevent <laughs> the pressing issues. 
but uh but yeah i think you're right that this is not some new development i think back to many of those beloved movies like beauty and the beast and the little mermaid and and aladdin and and while they were certainly less obvious i think with pushing some of the progressive stuff those elements were there movies like mulan they certainly had a very particular worldview they were trying to advance that wouldn't be welcome in many of the places where those fables were drawn from tried telling those the you know that version of aladdin or mulan in you know their home countries i think they did that with mulan in the remake and ended up uh, having quite the controversy. So I feel like Disney always had a certain level of baseline progressivism that was very obvious in many of their cartoons, their, their movies, those kind of things. But we just kind of ignored it because A, we're kids and we're not really picking up on the messages that are being directly sent to us. But B, they didn't feel as malicious and ab- uh, upfront. But most importantly, I think, was the quality of those films. You may can say what you want about the messages. The jokes were funny. The music was funny. The animation was beautiful. There was a lot of talent on display. And I think for a lot of conservatives, they look at this stuff and they say, oh, well, the message is there. And because the message is there, that's what makes it seductive. That's what pushes this stuff on kids. That's what indoctrinates people into it. But I don't think that's really the case. I mean, that obviously is part of why it's there. But the fact that it was of quality, the thing that people wanted to watch because it was entertaining, because it had some level of enrichment that was bringing to the table, allows them to then bring their message along with it. And I think until conservatives understand that it's the quality of the content that allows them to communicate the message instead of thinking that the message is the central aspect that needs to be changed, I think they're going to continue to run into this problem. Absolutely. And even with something like Milan, that message is almost less subversive than a a film that depicts a woman who is becoming like a girl boss or something, because it's almost absurd. Because even if you do concede that it's like, okay, this is a movie about a woman who is fighting and even she's more competent than a lot of the male soldiers, women who are watching that movie, they might, you know, oh, we can do anything you can do. They don't actually believe that. They don't act in ways that demonstrate that. You you wouldn't see like an increase in women enlisting into to combat roles because of movies like that. What I took away from that as a child was almost more uh, of a message about like duty and honor and sacrifice, you know, protecting mm-hmm. family members, which, you know, maybe are not traditionally feminine virtues, but I think that they were still successful because they were ultimately good virtues as opposed to something that would be more modern where it's like, you know, I'm going to put off having a family or being a a mother or nurturer, and I'm going to instead freeze my eggs and go work for some corporation or something like that. But it is also true that uh, conservatives can't make movies without making them like self-referential. They have to be obviously conservative movies. Anything that we make that's conservative culture has to be marketed to a built-in audience because we lack a sort of connection to our intellectual tradition uh, as people who are conservative or right-wing. And so we can only really respond to the absurdities of the left where we see you know, the left having a, a partnership with Dylan Mulvaney. And so we have to do a base beer now or the left does this, and so we have to do anti that. But we don't have the confidence or knowledge to really create anything that sort of stands for itself, for its own sake. It always has to respond to something that uh, people find vaguely annoying about the woke stuff. What do you think it is that separated conservatives from their culture in this way? Is it is it just the the general cultural revolution, something in the 60s? What is it that makes it so difficult difficult for conservatives to connect something to a tradition and be confident in that and communicate it in a way that is competent and enjoyable? Probably because our talking head and pundit class was gatekept from becoming what it was supposed to be and in maintaining that sort of tradition and understanding, uh, whether it's through the National Review guys or even like in the last 10, 15 years or so, though it has gotten a lot better. I think that people who are Uh, more quote-unquote radical, meaning they have done the reading and they have sort of followed the conclusion of certain ideas to their logical extent, those people are gatekept from the discussion to a large extent because the people who are more mainstream maybe view them to be threatening, uh, view them to be, you know, off-putting or something like that. A lot of times it's just some personal grudge because they don't like, because think, I mean, if you're like a total like mainstream talking head guy, and you've been repeating the same platitudes and talking points uh, that you know the generations prior had been doing, you're going to be threatened by someone who comes along and they actually have a more interesting and a fresher answer, also a true answer to the issues that your audience are asking about. And so I think that those people have been kept from the discussion to a large extent. Um, and that's going to bleed into the way that our culture sort of reflects itself and channels itself politically. 
are we seeing the end in in some ways of the modern movie culture because it feels like in it feels like disney is a victim of these large acquisitions that just kind of all busted one after the other maybe it's because disney is just ruining the production of of all of these movies but it also feels like they bought up you know marvel studios and 20th century fox and all of these studios that were in the business of making these giant comic blockbusters that had hundreds of millions of dollars of production value behind it. I remember when you used to be able to go to a movie theater and watch a 10, 20, 30 million dollar movie and they would expect a good return on that. They would expect that to do well. Today it feels like movies can only be uh, you know some crazy indie movie or a 300 million dollar highly managed safe production and Disney's gone around and bought up all these studios that are particularly in that business and now it feels like people are kind of done with the cgi special effects spectacle that's not enough to bring people to the plate and now they they've just kind of uh they're stuck holding all of these uh dinosaur franchises that are dying off one by one yeah my uh my dopamine receptors have been fried out i've seen the space battles and the aliens i i want to return to just like criminals like imagine and i think that's honestly that's like my tinfoil hat on it why superhero films as a genre have drifted away from just like Batman fights criminals because there are a lot of anxieties that people have right now about crime in this country, crime in the world that could be accurately portrayed through something like that, where you've got a vigilante who steps up to restore order to his community. But instead, it has to be, no, it's about Thanos who wants to depopulate people. And that's like freaking bad. And we have to stop him uh, or or things of that nature. But I, I do think there's also a sinister component where they'll buy these franchises and they will market their new films, whether it's like Indiana Jones or they paid Harrison Ford. I don't even know how much money to reprise that role. Or the same thing with Harrison Ford in the new Star Wars films, where in the trailer, you know, they do that like fade in with Han Solo and everyone's super excited. He's back and then they kill him off immediately. So it's like they get you by marketing the, the characters and the movies that you love and you go pay your $12 for a ticket. And then what you watch is a terrible story. And it's almost like humiliating to see those characters that you love so much, like, you know, uh, treated in the ways that they're treated or sort of just like dragged out and they're limping along or even just killed off completely. And they, they want to tell those same stories using the momentum that was built up by those franchises. But then they have to ornament them with having like, you know, a completely diverse cast. Uh, every culture, every subgroup is represented in a way that doesn't really add anything to the story, but ultimately like pokes a lot of holes in it. Like the whole story of Star Wars initially was Luke Skywalker has to figure out how to be a Jedi and be responsible. And then you've got the new Star Wars movies and it's like, okay, we've got this woman. She's a Jedi. We don't really know how she's like better and actually even more moral and more of a real Jedi than Luke Skywalker is. And so it's just all backwards and nonsense and and nobody likes it, but they still pay to go see it. And I think Disney knows that. I think that they have purged themselves of the real class of like autistic filmmakers who really actually cared about the production value and cared about telling good stories. And now it's just people who think good stories are like, well, we're going to have something that's kind of cool and interesting and it's going to be a grand spectacle. But the real goodness of the the story is going to be the fact that every culture and every identity has been represented through the cast. The thing I found interesting about kind of the Star Wars continuation is they didn't even know what to do. Like obviously the end of the original Star Wars movies is the fact that the empire is defeated and now you're going to have these guys who need to like figure out how to rule the galaxy, but they can't even do that because that would mean that these people are in charge and they have authority and they had right. to like grow up and you know, they have to become some kind of responsible society. So instead they just make up some random thing where everybody just hits reset and they go back to being rebels. No, no reason. It makes no sense. There's, there's absolutely, it just, they just couldn't, they had no idea how to portray these characters as kind of, mature adults who managed to like put a civilization together and had to run society and like grew in some way that you know that might might communicate some kind of conservative value some kind of some kind of right. order yeah, the, the only thing they can have is the rebel and there, there's no other way to write this i also think it's interesting that yeah harrison ford has to go through this humiliation ritual of every franchise like he's he's the the lodestone of every one of these franchises and his job in each one is to become a sad old like single dad who has to hand over the franchise to a, a girl who's good at everything and talks down to him the entire time. And that's yeah. the only way they can manage to write this. Yeah. They did the same thing with James Bond. I remember seeing uh, no time to die where they, because when they, they debuted uh, the black actress as money penny in Skyfall 
And she wasn't more competent than him. In fact, she was actually pretty incompetent. I remember even in the first scene where they're doing a car chase, uh, she didn't know what she was doing. And he had to grab the wheel and, you know, run the Range Rover into the bad guy's car. So that was like, okay, I'm not going to be offended by that just because she's black. But when you bring in, like, there was the character in No Time to Die, this secret agent who's a black woman, and now she's actually portrayed as being more competent than James Bond uh, and, and, you know, even surviving, whereas he sacrifices himself at the end. Right? I guess he doesn't really sacrifice himself. He did get out Fox there. It's just things like that, like seeing people who are traditionally beloved characters who are competent, being upstaged by people who are not believably going to be more competent than them, and especially because they're just newer characters. We don't know what these people's backgrounds are. That is where it just does get really off-putting to the audience. Even my dad had like an ego death walking out of that theater. He's like, you know, just some boomer just wants to grill just want he, they just have to destroy everything he's like really just personally offended by the way that they uh took out james bond so yeah it, it bleeds into every aspect even franchises that aren't even disney per se i had uh jonathan peugeot on last week and he's doing the snow white retelling and he said the reason he started doing it was because he saw that disney was going to try to make the movie and he just knew they couldn't tell they couldn't tell the story anymore he's like i before you know the minute i saw this on the disney slate i immediately started work on my thing because I knew that Disney had to fail at telling a story that involved romance and a woman being rescued and dwarves. There's just too many elements that couldn't possibly. And, and sure enough, they had to try to redo all this. We, we ended up with seven people of diverse backgrounds and different mythical enchantments. The Snow White can't be white. She can't yeah. be rescued by a prince. All of this stuff. And when they saw kind of how disastrous this whole thing was, they've now gone back and apparently they're trying to just plug in cgi dwarves everywhere in some kind of you know panic thing but what does that mean for a company like disney where their ideology doesn't allow them to tell just kind of the most basic archetypical stories about the human experience yeah i mean that's a that's a company that made a name for themselves largely through telling those stories i mean you know the disney princesses are like a whole roster of characters uh who and i mean i love those movies too um, my sister loved those movies it doesn't necessarily have to be geared towards a feminine audience. I mean, it was just like family movies that people enjoyed because it, it reflected something about the human experience that we could all resonate with. But if you are staffing your production companies filled with people who have no idea what the human experience is, or maybe they have an idea of it, but they feel betrayed by it and so they resent it, that's not going to be a recipe for success. And they might be able to ride that wave of cultural familiarity and sort of a built-in audience for a while. But 10, 15 years from now, I mean, they're going to have to either readjust their content or try to just take it in a, in a different direction completely. Um, but, but there's no way to keep making stuff that is not performing well with audiences and that is losing you money and sustain yourself as an entertainment company, let alone one that's like a kingpin like they've been for so long. So obviously a lot of this has just been remakes. They've been going to this live action remake well, and the first couple did okay, but they're just getting worse and worse, more disastrous. Uh, with each one of these that they make do you, do you qualify as a zoomer or are you too old to be a zoomer was it with i uh i consider myself a first wave zoomer oh. i draw the line at, at 9 11 i cannot understand the post 9 11 zoomers but i also i'm not a millennial but that really is like the line because you know these kids grew up with iPhones and technology far more integrated into their their day to days than than my generation or my first half of the generation i think that is unique with zoomers too uh, I don't think any other generation really has a micro generation the way that Gen Z does. But yeah, I, I would be a first wave Zoomer. Yeah, I, I don't know. I sit in the uh, I'm, I'm uh, a couple years too young to be a Gen, uh, Gen Xer, but I don't okay. really feel like a millennial. So I, I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm in that buffer zone as well. But that might just be a, a general feeling of being a couple years into the generation and mostly growing up with with kind of the old culture. Right. Um, but, but what I'm wondering is, you know, once that becomes the, and you know, these people are already coming of age. A lot of people think of Zoomers as the young people. They're not like at this point, Zoomers are the ones starting to have kids and everything. And mm. they're, they're starting to have families. You know, when these, when, when those kids are the ones that are the audiences for this thing, they're going to have no connection to any of these stories. None of that nostalgia baits going to work anymore. And all of the studios that, you know, that uh, Disney bought out to try to keep themselves relevant over the years, will have also been trading on all of these ancient properties. And so I wonder what even shared culture they can make films about at that point, because it seems to me that the younger generation here, now I'm super old because I just use the phrase the younger <laughs> generation here. God, okay. Um, but it feels like, uh, you know, from, from, from my wheelchair, it feels like 
the fracturing of content is the story of the next generation that YouTube and these bite-sized pieces are really what people want to watch. If you take a 10 year old and you put them in front of a movie, they're just not interested anymore. They don't yeah. have the attention span. This content's more than seven minutes long. I, I want to hit the next button. And so I wonder you know, what a media company like that can even do if it's trying to put out long form and by long form here, we mean like two to three hour movie content and expect it to do massive numbers that can recoup hundreds of millions of dollar type budgets. That's what I'm wondering if, if the strategy, I mean, they must be self-aware to a certain degree that they are just churning out recycled, repackaged crap that panders to the lowest common denominator. But maybe that's like their strategy just to buy themselves time when they're like, okay, how do we adapt to this market where the younger generations who our content supposed to be curated towards, they would, I mean, you'd even take a person to a movie theater, you watch a movie with a friend, they're on their phone, even people who aren't even like iPad kids, like I'll watch a movie with a buddy on his phone the whole time. So maybe that's what their strategy is. So like buying themselves time is, okay, we just have to make more of this, more of this. It's working for the time being. We know eventually it's not going to, but we have to buy ourselves some time until we figure out what the next step is. Because you know, Netflix got into the streaming game. They caught up. They've got Disney Plus. Every major network now has some form of streaming uh, platform. But even that, I mean, they're wrestling for market share. That doesn't even seem to really be like a, a, an inroad the way that it was maybe five, six years ago. There has to be some next step because of the eroding attention spans and because there's just such a library of content that people have access to at all times. It's not, and people don't even go see the whether it's because of COVID or they're just antisocial, people don't go to movies the way that they used to go to movies. They don't even really watch movies the way that they used to watch movies. I mean, and when they do, they go to the theater, they're on their phone, they're dressed like slobs. They just, there's, it's not really that like experience or occasion of going out to see a movie like there used to be, unless it is some big blockbuster where it's like, you know, the next Avengers film or something like that. Yeah, when I was a kid, the movies were obvious, obviously an opportunity to see something big on, on the screen, but when you got older, we become a teenager, young adult. It's a way to get away from your parents, to hang out with your friends. It, it's a larger amount of kind of unsupervised time. Uh, that that was the purpose was it was a social activity meant to yeah. kind of kind of give your group something to do, something to share. You go out and grab something to eat afterwards, that kind of thing. Now it feels like, no, everybody just wants to be talking online. They want to be texting. You know, they, they don't actually want to meet in person if they can at all avoid it. And so it feels like the whole purpose of the movie theater experience for a large swath, especially the younger generation that would build nostalgia based on that experience is gone. There's no incentive for that anymore. Yeah. I mean, they would, they would rather uh, sit in someone's basement and do vape like a bunch of degenerates and play on their phones than go to, and that's gotta be part of it too. I mean, the last five times I've gone to a theater to see a movie, like three of them have been unpleasant because people talking, people being obnoxious and, you know, I remember being a teenager and being obnoxious in a movie theater, but I would shut up when the movie started. Like, you know, that right. was sort of my implicit bargain with the adult patrons. Like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be this. But when, you know, that for, when, the, when the lights dim, then I'll be uh, a respectful member of society. I'll return my shopping cart or do the equivalent in the movie theater. But that's got to be part of it, too. I mean, the older generations who maybe do respect the institution of the cinema, maybe they're not even going anymore because you can't go to a movie without hearing talking people on their phones, things of that nature. What do you think that, I mean, obviously we talked a little bit about the fracturing of the market and the way that this this format format itself might be in trouble. What do you think a company like that can do moving forward other than just marking time? Are they all just going to go into buying, I don't know, TikTok production companies? Like, what, what, what do you do with that when you, when there's the, the core audience, the core uh, kind of format that you were trying to sell where these longer form theater experiences that doesn't exist any for anymore kind of the overwhelming streaming uh, version isn't working either they're they're throwing you know hundreds of millions of dollars into these streaming shows nobody's watching them what kind of outlet can they look for when that's no longer an option they'd probably have to start to move towards consolidating some fraction of market share in social media platforms and social media companies themselves i don't even know if that's possible but that's where all the young people's eyes are on TikTok, Instagram. Instagram Reels are a lot of fun. YouTube, uh, I guess Twitter now or X. Um, people just aren't watching television. And, and, you know, when they are watching television, younger kids, it's just put on in the background. They're not even like watching it, especially too with the way technology is developing, uh, the, the way that advertisers can track how effective their ad buys are for kids. I mean, I, I can tell you, I couldn't tell you the last time I heard a child 
express interest in a toy, let alone one that they saw on TV because of a commercial or something. So I, I don't know how much money they're making from that programming. I mean, I can remember seeing advertisements for things and making my Christmas list and this isn't what I want. Um, but I just don't think it's effective for advertisers. I don't think it's effective for the company. So there's got to be some jump at some point. But still, I mean, the trains are still running. You've still got these these time blocks of, okay, well, this network's going to have this program all day today. Teen Titans Go running eight hours a day on Cartoon Network or something like that. Like, there's got to be something to fill that time. Maybe they are content with until they figure out what the next jump is to just replaying reruns of stuff that used to be good, stuff that's okay, but we're going to just play it all day until they figure that out because... I don't think there is a way to really bring anything back with the older models, older, I guess, being defined as even just five, six, seven years ago. They're going to have to try to make an inroad in some form of new content or new trajectory as a media company, um, because I don't think they have the the courage to try to make older content, but in a way that's better. I don't think they have the courage to make good television shows or good movies the way that, you know, would have been defined by like the golden era of Disney or something like that. Yeah, I haven't had cable in, I think, almost decades at this point. And it's weird because whenever I end up in a hotel room or something, I'm amazed how much of the uh, television lineup is just 10 hours of Friends, 10 hours of Seinfeld, 10 hours of Frasier or something. It TV shows that were old when I was a kid and they're still yeah. the, like basically the majority of programming. And it's like, what what happened? Is culture just stuck in in ice for these these last few years you've got a few different innovations we're supposed to have this golden age of television but that went on and you know hbo and these other premium services but the vast majority of kind of the stuff that's still piped into most people's homes is almost purely reruns of these old shows and i just wonder what happened i mean i i guess I mean, we know that there's a lot of political correctness we know that there's a lot of you know that the, the lower level of creativity they have to have many different uh, hiring many different people who don't have the ability to kind of produce a higher quality of content but i also wonder if there's just something about the inability to i don't know transgress in that kind of thing anymore they've kind of mined the you know, all the marrow out of the bones of kind of the christian substructure of our culture it feels like all of that heat that they used to generate by kind of burning the social fabric just doesn't exist anymore you look at uh, you know i, I think as uh, little nos x or whatever has another oh, i'm being crucified it's like how's who cares at this point like you're you're so boring this is what you did for your last three songs who who's even around to be offended at this at this point it just feels like there's there's no ability for them to kind of create any friction or can any any kind of traction when it comes to uh creative content at this point yeah i mean maybe that's the impetus you know they're like okay people are just gonna binge watch friends all day anyways on netflix our best chance to compete is to just put it on all day on our network so that they can watch it here as an alternative uh but i, I think that's exactly right they are like locked into this box where they're afraid to do anything that might get them in trouble i mean even something like the office you know i, I hate to use this line of argument but the office probably couldn't be made nowadays because it would get canceled uh by the woke mob because you've got michael scott who is like a sex pest and like implicitly racist. <laughs> and But I mean, he's harmless. He's a good guy. Uh, he's like your uncle at Thanksgiving, maybe. He's just, you know, a funny guy. People can relate to him. The experiences in that office, if you've worked in any capacity in like an office environment or even something like Breaking Bad. I mean, that's widely regarded to be like the best television show of all time. And Breaking Bad is a story of a guy who feels emasculated uh, even, I mean, accessorized by the fact that his son is disabled. I mean, his heir is like this this kid, and he's got, uh, what is it? Um, he's got the crutches. I don't know the name of the disease. Maybe MS has. or something. Yeah. yeah, and he's got like a speech impediment, and like this guy feels totally emasculated, and he decides to become himself by creating a drug empire. Uh, and, and that is like a story that is very empowering for a demographic that is not allowed to be empowered, but people still watch it. They love it. They don't maybe know why they love it, but stories like that, which are even framed to be problematic. I don't think people or production companies have the, uh, the audacity to make anymore. It's a lot safer to just have like very quirky self-referential bits that recycle the same sort of plot lines, but that don't really do anything that is, that is interesting. Or even like something like the Sopranos has a lot of commentary uh, uh, between, you know, Tony and his psychiatrist or uh, Tony and, and Christopher about the decline that we were seeing in the late 90s and the 2000s in this country. That's a lot of commentary that people like that they resonate with, but that couldn't be included in a program nowadays. What do you think about this kind of phenomenon of the accidentally based or kind of low key based show? Like, I don't know, The Shield or something 
where it comes out and there's a lot of truth in it. There's a lot of, of kind of uh, archetypes hidden in there and truth hidden in there that otherwise wouldn't make it past probably most of the production uh, teams today. Conservatives often jump on this. A lot of people on the right tend to jump on these things, get excited about them, even when they're portrayed as kind of evil or comical in these. You know, the de debate always goes on about Warhammer 40K or these things that, are, oh, is it farcical or not? Is it supposed to be satire, uh, you know, Starship Troopers, that kind of thing? Is that healthy that that's something that you can uh, constantly see the right do? Should they only be investing in things that are intentionally for them? Or is it good that these things bubble up these archetypes return over and over and again, even if they're uh, produced by people who probably don't agree with them? That's a good question. I, I have a reputation for analyzing pieces of media through a political lens. And when I do that, I do that because I'm trying to appeal to a mass audience and, and get them to believe my ideas in a way that's familiar to them. So like I do the Beauty and the Beast video and I'm saying that it's like feminist propaganda, which it probably is, and, and Gaston's the true hero of the story. And through that, we now have tens of thousands of young men who have the correct view on feminism, uh, on things of that nature, not just like anti-third wave feminism, but a much more authentic understanding of it. So it is good to a certain extent to take pieces of media that might communicate our ideas, even if only incidentally and be like, look, see this, you need to believe this. That is good. But I do think that uh, there is an impulse that we have on the right because we are so devoid of victory to look at anything that might even vaguely express right-wing sentiment in the culture and be like, oh my gosh, we're taking the culture back. Look, where in reality, it's probably more like you said, where it's just accidentally, it just sort of happened because maybe some producer wanted to tell this story. They don't understand that the movie's maybe implicitly right-wing. Uh, and if they found that out, maybe they wouldn't have made it in the way that they did. But we also, on the other hand, don't really have an ability uh, ability to make those pieces of media ourselves. So I'm kind of at a, at a loss on that one. I don't exactly know what the way forward is. I will continue to do my job, which is to co-opt these things and claim them as victories if it helps red pill the audience more. But uh, I, I don't know what the way forward is, I guess, for the broader movement. Yeah, I don't think it's ideal, but I think you're right that you kind of have to work with what you have in that scenario. When you're in the guerrilla warfare position you can't complain about the fact that you can't amass ranks of troops and so yeah you kind of just have to work with what you have there so your your latest video was on why the right can't produce culture and i think a very interesting point that you made was that the idea of producing culture at all is, is kind of misnomer could you go into that a little bit Sure. Yeah. I sort of laugh um, because I see this on the timeline so often from these people where they're like the right needs to be making culture. And it's like, okay, do it. Go on, make, make some culture. Let me see. Let me see what you got. Because it misunderstands culture. And, you know, I had to segue it into the immigration thing as well, because it doesn't surprise me at all that the class of people who thinks that culture is something that can just be commissioned is the same class of people who believes in this sort of universal American identity where anybody can come to America and become an American, assimilate into American culture, whatever that is. So it's very unsurprising to me that that definition they have in their mind for, you know, the as it pertains to immigration policy would translate so fluently over to how they believe, you know, the culture war ought to be fought uh, in America. But yeah, I mean, it's basically to say that you look at what defines American culture uh, at its peak these were not things that were done because people got together and were like, we really need to, to do this. We need to make sure that our music is operating well. We need to make sure that our architecture looks good and we need to make sure that our films are good. Like obviously when whenever somebody creates anything, they probably want it to be good and to be successful and to be remembered. But it's to say that there was no top-down effort saying that we need to make culture because culture is something that is a reflection of the spirit of the people making it. It's a reflection of the soul of the people making it. And that's why you see that a lot of the culture that the left makes is resentful and subversive and perverted because that is fundamentally what leftists are. And you see a lot of the culture that's made by conservatives is ultimately just smug because that's what we are. We just want to be smug and we want to own the libs. We want to show it to our, our niece at Thanksgiving and say, look at this. Aren't you so triggered? And she's just like eating. She's like, what are you talking about? Like, Leave me alone. Stop talking to me. You're making me uncomfortable. And because that's what we are. We are smug and we don't really have a focus or serious focus on victory and on actually winning uh, any of these battles, let alone culturally. I think you're right that kind of having this idea that paper is what makes you an American and there's no particularity to what people should enjoy as part of your culture, as part of a people, a group that has a shared tradition and history and, and set of values, a moral vision that are setting forward. Th that makes it very difficult for conservatives to come in because this should be their moment, right? Like you have the left 
And like I said, with Peugeot, he realized like they can't make this movie anymore because they're just completely disconnected from these archetypes. They don't have an understanding of kind of where this comes from, why this matters. Everything in here is taboo and forbidden anyway. And that should be the moment that uh, a conservative can step up and say, well, I know how to tell this story. I, I know what yeah. this is connected to. But because they're kind of dedicated to liberalism, but 20 years ago, they're kind of stuck with it, with the same problem because they don't have really any more connection to that history and that tradition than the average liberal did. They just remember that they should, right? Like, oh, well, yeah. I, I remember there was a time where like my dad understood why he fought in a war, but I don't know what that would mean. And so I don't know what a sacrifice like that would look like. And so I don't know how to tell any kind of story connected to it because at this point I'm I'm kind of three parts removed from anything that actually would give me the identity and the understanding and the, the frame of context to tell that story. Right. Yeah. They just want to go back to the 1990s. This is the, uh, the millennial occupied, uh, millennial occupied political class. They just want to go back to the 1990s or even like there was a, I think it was daily wire made a movie and it was a conservative movie because it was about self-defense and not being a victim and fighting off a school shooter. But then the protagonist was a young lady and that's cool but you know this is just not quite where we want it to be and it's like that like they understand it insofar as they maybe don't like the narrative that's being espoused by the left but they don't have a deep enough understanding of the issue to take it to where it needs to be to where somebody who is impartial would look at what is being offered by both sides and be like okay both of these sides understand what they're saying they are in clear opposition to each other they're confident in what they believe and now i can actually make a choice it seems to be that is represented by the actions of one side and the other side is just kind of like well not exactly there but i'm also not really offering a serious alternative at the same time so i think we've probably covered most of of what's going on with disney here so i wanted to break into your other uh, field of expertise for today. Yes, yes. It's it's the veneration, a holiday uh, much remembered, uh, often by the conservative community. I've done an episode on this, so if people want to go into depth, I know you've done a full episode on this too, and so people can look more into the background. But for people who are thinking Martin Luther King, you know, conservative icon, of course this is this is something we should be celebrating. What do you have to say to that? Um. Well. You know, I, I did take a lot of inspiration from your video, actually. I remember even before we went live, you told me that I should get a white monster to celebrate MLK Day. I don't know what you meant by that, but we we are enjoying, we are, uh, when in Rome, following the customs. But basically, the MLK problem is that if you can see that MLK is fundamentally a good figure in American history, which the parameters of that debate are completely established. I mean, you can agree that he, or you can disagree that he was a hero in the way that the left wants him to be regarded, but you still have to believe that he is a hero if you want to exist within a mainstream conservative circle. And the problem with that is that if you believe that MLK is actually somebody who should be regarded uh, positively in the sort of historiography of America, what you're conceding is that the cause of the civil rights movement, uh, the successes of it, all of that is actually like good and justified. And so then the question becomes, well, where do you want to draw the line then? If MLK was good, if the civil rights movement was good, well, when did it become not good? Why are there so many parallels between the sentiment and the rhetoric in the 1960s and the sentiment and the rhetoric that we have now? If something changed in between, it seems like it's always been sort of the same thing. So they can't really draw a line at when things actually change. Like we said earlier, I mean, they are really incapable of understanding what they even believe. They just know that they are in opposition to what is being espoused presently by the left. Uh, and so that's the problem. And it's very self-defeating because now you have a conservative political establishment that is revering Martin Luther King. And so it's much more difficult for them to articulate why the successors of his movement are actually wrong, why the policies that were alluded to in many of his writings are actually wrong if they've conceded the fundamental point, which is that this country was structurally, fundamentally, institutionally racist and morally wrong. And it had to be reformed through the civil rights movement and the legislation and the court rulings. And now, well, why is it suddenly so wrong when those things are taken to their logical conclusions uh, that, again, Martin Luther King would have been fully in support of? Yeah, that, that's the part that is always confusing to me, because what I always hear is, well, it was all it was hijacked by Marxism. You know, Marxism, is, you know, it's at some point there there was a, a switch throne, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And uh, and the Marxists took over the civil rights movement. And that's when it turned bad. 
But when you look at even, I mean, a guy like Chris Rufo wrote a book about the culture revolution and he has the Marxists being well entrenched in that revolution in the 60s. And it's, I think, pretty well known that MLK was relatively close with a number of communists. It's like, so what point do you think this magically happened if it was there at the very beginning? It seems very incoherent to acknowledge that simultaneously, this was a core factor in the movement back at, at its foundation but also it just happened to hijack the movement like seven years ago yeah it's sort of interesting too i, I saw an article this morning uh where i think it's something like 50 percent of citizens in south africa are now completely dependent on state welfare and the anc responded to this statistic and they said well this is good actually and it's like when you when you understand sort of the impulse that drives people to maybe be more woke or the impulse that drives people to maybe be more communist. It's very difficult to separate that because ultimately what that means is you want wealth redistributed from one group and given to other groups. And so maybe somebody who is a Black Lives Matter person wants that to be specifically from uh, white people to non-white people. Then maybe you've got a, common, a communist who just wants it to be from the tax base to everyone else. And then you're like, okay, well, the tax base, white people, these are very difficult uh, groups to separate. So it is sort of all the same thing. And honestly, most of the the drive to separate those is not done out of a sense of like truth seeking or intellectual honesty. It's much more because they're afraid of being called mean names by people who hate them already. Cause it's like, okay, well, can I be opposed to the civil rights movement because it was like driven by racial resentment? And it's like, no, you have to be opposed to it because they had communist sympathies. And it's like, okay, yes, but if we're going to go there, if we're going to swing at the King, literally Martin Luther King, we should probably uh, go all the way there because otherwise we're going to be misleading our base. It, it feels like there was this giant shift in the Reagan era, right? These it kind of gets lionized up to this point. I think that opposition to King as kind of a leading figure nationwide in general is, is pretty common, especially on the right. And after he, you know, the holiday comes in and, and many of these points are conceded at that moment we have to kind of go back and retroactively rewrite all of King's history. And so, yeah, he said, you know, judge people by the content of their character, but he believed in affirmative action and he wanted racial quotas and he believed in income redistribution and basically kind of all of the things that the modern woke people would want to apply and continue applying DI. I don't think outside of maybe the LGBT stuff would look particularly odd to King. And yet somehow I have, you know, Josh Hawley coming on and say, actually, you know, he's, you know, the, the, the return of Christ. It's basically, uh, he, he spoke with the power of Christ. Like actually he didn't even believe in the deity of Christ. So that, that's it just seems like a weird thing that we have to retroactively go back and, and change all this. And it all kind of hinged on that eighties moment. Yeah. And it's so insulting too, because you can present these people with primary source evidence, an argument uh, about how, okay, well, wait a minute, why are all of MLK's successors, right-hand men, why did they go on to become people like, you know, Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton? Why did, why do they support Black Lives Matter? Like what about that would MLK have tried to correct and prevent them from doing? And then they'll send you that one quote as if you hadn't heard that. I understand everything you're saying, but consider this right. quote that MLK said about judging people based on the content of their character instead of the color of their skin. And, and you read that and then you're just like are a totally BTFO'd argument completely obliterated. I hadn't even, that hadn't even occurred to me. I mean, I can't believe I wasted so much time reading all this other stuff when that quote was right there on Facebook. Yeah. And it's like, look guys, I'm with you. Like treat people well, like don't be a jerk to people because of the color skin. Okay. That's fine. Do we have to pretend the man never said anything else? Like, is that, does yeah. that have to be the end of all of his communications? His entire history vanishes like i promise like they're gonna call you racist either way so you can just like treat people well and then acknowledge that all the rest of this is just incorrect it, it, this is not a legacy that actually is conservative yeah and that quote wasn't even his i mean he spoke it but i, I believe that was ghost written uh from that one communist guy uh whose name escapes me but he ghost wrote that whole speech for him um, if that does come from the I have a dream speech, which I, it probably does. The sentiment basically is articulated the same in that speech. And that was ghostwritten. I mean, you know, he said what he had to say because he was the leader of a political movement. Uh, he was using a lot of language to try to appeal to white America, Christian America, his nonviolence rhetoric. 
was espoused, not because he was against violence necessarily, uh, but because you had, you know, Black Panthers and Malcolm X who were fed posting, talking about killing white police officers, killing white people. And so you got all these white people in 20th century America who are like, wait a minute, I don't know how I feel about that. And so he had to come out and say, no, we are nonviolent. We are peaceful. The same way now you'll have a, a rally, you'll have a protest. And then the second it gets a little bit dark, a riot breaks out, things go badly. Well, it was peaceful. You know, 93% of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. So when you really start to read into the history of this, like all history, it's the same thing. It's the same problem. Everything is just repeating. And, and we rarely learn anything from it. And that was very sobering when I really started to look into this topic. I, I thought that I found some answers and I felt alleviated to a certain extent because it was like, okay, this is the same problem now as it has been for in the last 70 years. But then I did feel a little bit blackpilled because it was like, okay, we're probably not going to figure this out. We're probably not going to solve it because we've been going at it for so many decades already. Well, and the amazing thing is every time I have this conversation, and like you said, you bring these facts, you bring the primary sources, you bring the quotes, and people look at that, and if and in their, in their more honest moments, they'll even be like, well, yes, okay, maybe King believes some of this stuff, and maybe we have it represented to him. Yeah. But if you start talking about, you know, the issues with the Civil Rights Act, then we'll just go back to Jim Crow. Or, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to Jim Crow. We'll go back to, to that level of segregation. And I'm, I was like, this is just the most disingenuous talking point possible. The whole civil rights revolution was sold to the American people on the idea that there was an emergency situation that needed to be solved by what are, frankly, extrajudicial means in order to kind of restructure the attitudes in the South specifically so that you could you could solve a problem. Say what you want about that particular approach. That was the way it was sold to the North, to most of the people who thought they would never be impacted by it. And then it turned out to become this you know, giant bureaucracy that enveloped almost the entire government, every private and public sector institution installed political commissars based on this ideology. And it's very clear. It's like, okay, guys, well, if you do you really think that if we pulled this out tomorrow, like literally every, you know, HR manager disappeared off the face of the earth. Suddenly the buses would, would be segregated. Like, do we really believe that at this point? Because it seems pretty ridiculous that the, but, but this is the way that it's approached every time someone suggests that perhaps this thing that was built to be temporary should finally become temporary. Yeah. And I, I really, it is a luxury uh, in politics to be spoken to, not like a kindergartner. Like they'll always use this very charged moral language. Like this is so vile. You literally want black people to have to deal with segregation again. It's like, can we just speak about this? Like adults, please. I mean, right. if you look at the, any metric by which you would try to evaluate the, the general well-being of a community, it's been worse for black Americans since the 1960s. And so that should even just warrant discussion by itself. Like, okay, if this was the key to closing the gap uh, uh, between black Americans and white Americans. Why has this gone so like disastrously for everybody involved, let alone the people who it was supposed to help in the first place? That in itself should warrant some more discussion and investigation, but instead we just, well, that wasn't true civil rights. We have to take it further and we have to have more bureaucrats. We have to have more laws to close more gaps, more affirmative action, more thumbs on the scales, different things like that. I mean, we're like a trillion dollars and 60, 70 years into this, and we've seen no significant progress. If anything, we've seen uh, things get a lot worse. And so I'm really optimistic on the base of that, that we're seeing uh, more of the mainstream right start to discuss this with much more criticism than they are uh, veneration for Martin Luther King and broadly speaking, that entire movement. What do you think about that change? What do you think brought that about? Because it's very interesting. I mean, I mean, Charlie Kirk was getting groped a few years ago, and now he's talking about the uh, you know, the, the Civil Rights Act. Like, what happened there? You know, I, I do want to take a little bit of credit for this. Not a lot of credit, but I jumped in the water with that video two years ago. Um, and I know that I have people who watch me who work for a lot of bigger talking heads and as their writers, as their production people. And none of that was, I'm not like claiming that I was the guy who figured out that maybe MLK is not so good, but that's like our job. You know, our job is to move the ball down the field. And so if I can take that information and put it out to a big audience and then, you know, one or two guys take that and they put it out to an even bigger audience. I do like to think that I played a little bit uh, of a part in that because, you know, one of these guys too, I remember was asking a mutual friend of ours for book recommendations back in 2021. And I assembled a list that had a lot of really good titles on it, gave it to the friend, he gave it to this guy. And now all of a sudden, a couple of years later, these guys are really good on the issues. And so it, it is things like that. And also it is the anxiety of, I think, Americans giving them permission to explore ideas, which would have been regarded as taboo 
years prior, because as people become more anxious, I mean, naturally they're going to want to have as many options on the table as possible. So it was a lot easier back in the 1980s or something or 1990s to control the parameters of the discussion. But now because of that, and also how democratized access to information is because of the internet, even despite the censorship, it's much more available to people now than it would have been, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you would have had to browse on some obscure form to find a lot of this stuff. So I think it is just as we are continuing our cycle of decline, uh, the anxieties that people are experiencing are giving them permission to put away the priority of maybe not being called mean names and actually seek the truth and seek what is real. Yeah, it seems very strange. There's this weird moment where there, there's very clearly a number of conservatives or thing, you know, people who are supposed to be part of the new right in theory uh, who are very trying to put this thing in a, in a box back back in the box very yeah. quickly. like whoa 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 no 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 like obviously we can fight wokeness but let's let's not look more than five years into the past we're not conservatives here uh, and and so it's very strange to watch them attempt to do that but it's just not working the way it used to it, it feels like you know the the kind of the days where bill buckley could crack the whip and the rest of the conservative commentary it fell in life is just gone and and they're very panicked about this yeah, well, it's because, you know, these guys, uh, I guess we won't, I don't want to name names, but they make a living by taking what is so obvious to people and intellectualizing it into this giant word salad and then putting it out. And then people are like, wow, I, I guess this, this guy sounds pretty smart. We should probably listen to him. And I, I've, I've been retweeting this like once every three or four days because I think it is just so true that these people exist to be like Wheatley in Portal 2, where you've got GLaDOS who's becoming powerful and intelligent. And so the scientists create a robot to attach to her that just distracts her with the stupidest ideas that, that have ever been created just so that she does not become too powerful and intelligent. That's what I believe these people exist to do, is to just occupy the volume of discussion with the stupidest ideas possible to prevent it from becoming intelligent and real. And that's why they're paid. And that's why they exist. Because no normal person would ever read one of these word salads about you know, uh, the Hegelian dialectics or what have you and be like, wait a minute, this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. It's all nonsense and it's totally astroturf. So I can only assume it is done with this sort of like engineered stupidity in mind. Just kind of a rhetorical inf infinite plane to keep uh, any any part of the conservative hive man mind from becoming self-aware. Yes. I like it. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, pivot over to the questions of the people. But before we do that, John, where should people check out your excellent work? You should check out my excellent work at youtube.com slash John Doyle, where I regularly, frequently, and consistently post content. I'm also on Twitter at Comrade Doyle. Uh, and yes, that is where you can find me. Excellent. All right. Well, I am being attacked by a thunderstorm here, but all right, let's move on. Uh, Mint20 here says, what a crossover. This is a total plan truster vindication. It's absolutely true. Uh, the plan trusters are winning. The plan not trusters and the disloyal R's are seething. And you, you can't fault them for it. That's what they were designed to do. That's what they were destined to do. And so we have to actually be sympathetic. They're sort of tragic characters. All right. Cooper Weirdo says, you guys never know. Uh, you guys ever notice how the left is especially bad at making children family movies? Not even in a woke way. They're just bad. I don't know, man. I feel like uh, actually they kind of dominate uh, that kind of media. Unfortunately, that's main kind of the main problem with Disney, right? It, a lot of people are worried that the children won't have the level of discernment to identify the kind of propaganda that's being brought in front of them. I guess they're getting worse at it because they're just getting bad at communicating classic archetypes that kind of help children grow and form their worldviews in a healthy way, their healthy relationships, but that's kind of their point, right? Yeah, a lot of the older ones were definitely produced with subtle messaging like that and produced by people who certainly held those politics, but they were just better quality. So now maybe it's more obvious because they feel a need to have more representation of different identities, but it's also just the competence of the people making them uh, has declined significantly. We've got uh, Lutheran James here says, a question for John. I'm from New York City and I don't want to abandon the only home I've ever known. My question is, what do you think, uh, what do you think blue states are, uh, do you think blue states are worth saving? 
Yeah, I'm not one of these guys that's going to tell you to go homestead in Montana and be trad or whatever. I think that uh, it is important, especially if that's the only home you've ever known. I, I myself tend to be very sentimental. So I live in Texas right now, but I'll return to Michigan, even though it's governed by Gretchen Whitmer right now, even though it's becoming a bluer state, used to be a red, then purple state. But I, I do think it's important to stay uh, where your home is, where your family is. And I don't think that retreating is a good political strategy ever. I mean, if things start to get really bad where it's irresponsible to the safety of yourself and to those who you're responsible for to stay in those areas, then yeah, you should probably uh, abandon them. But if you're a young guy, you're a single guy, I mean, you could go anywhere. That's also something I think is important, just going and planting your flag in a totally new area, a new city, just to see what happens. But uh, insofar as you don't want to stay in those states because you're annoyed by the politics, I might reconsider that if you've got family, you've got roots there. Let me ask you this. I think a lot of people are looking for a way to generate community, to generate political power, to kind of have a shared vision that's going to allow them to create a barrier between them and a lot of the stuff that's probably going to come down uh, the federal pipeline. You mentioned South Africa, and I know a number of Afrikaners who gather together specifically because it allows them to resist a large amount of like what the, the central government is doing. Do you think America is going to get to that point where the, the wise game would be restructuring, not because you're you're looking to retreat from the politics in and of themselves, but that it's necessary to concentrate if you're going to forge a common culture and a political strength? Yeah, it, it absolutely could. I just don't think that we're there yet. Um, I remember I had Sargon of Akkad in studio a few months ago, and we, we spoke about this. And I articulated exactly that. Like, you know, at some point it may actually be the responsible and smart thing to do to sort of retreat and try to build something. And he scolded me. He was like, no, that's the problem is you people have thought that for so long. That's why you, and I was like, wait a minute, weren't you just a classical liberal? And now you're going to tell me that I, that I'm the one who's got the wrong thinking or something. I couldn't even believe it. But uh, yeah, that may be necessary at some point, but in terms of finding community, I've met a lot of great people online. I'm in a lot of great group chats, but I think it is important to meet people locally uh, and you're probably not going to find that in the places that you would think you're going to find like good right wing guys. I would recommend uh, training in marksmanship. I would recommend joining some sort of MMA gym, doing some sort of combat sport because you meet guys involved in those activities who are more or less center right in the gun community. There's a lot of like lolberts you're going to have to be wary of. But once you sort of transcend your proficiency and become less of just like, oh, my pew pews, my shooty shoot and actually start training like small unit tactics, more advanced things like that. Uh, the people who just want to LARP and like talk about my freedom go away pretty quickly. So anything like that, normal male activities, don't overthink it. Be normal. You're cool. You're well adjusted. Just be normal and you'll meet like minded guys. And maybe you can even, you know, take them down the rabbit hole with you. Absolutely. All right. Uh. Uh, adorable representative MC for youth says, what can I do if I get, I think it's keyed there. Oh, no, if I got, if I got uh, the jab. If... Oh, oh, okay. That's what that is. All right. Not, nothing. It's, <laughs> it's over. Just, yeah. <laughs> you can't do anything. It's, it's just over. No good. No good, man. Um, let's ship has sailed. Uh, Kruber weirdo says, uh, no, you don't get it. Uh, the literally me guy is the bad guy. Why don't you understand that? Yeah. I mean that again, I think that there's, like John said, value in being able to look at those leftist pieces where they accidentally produce someone who's good and based. And even if they're attempting attempting to cast them as the villain, you can still kind of find some some value in analyzing that. Uh, but there there is a problem inherently when when you're when you're having to do all of your cultural identity through someone else's lens. It, it's always going to be a messy game. Yeah, I saw a great tweet about uh, Rorschach from The Watchmen. That was like, uh, what was it? Like stinky schizophrenic man thinks that killing people is bad. I, uh, you like him because you're not smart enough to understand that killing millions of people is actually ethically justified. It was like went on for several paragraphs, but uh, it was sort of funny because Alan Moore, I guess, wrote Rorschach to be like a caricature of like right wing people. And he was supposed to be, you know, stupid and his values were actually inconducive to saving the world or whatever. But I guess history has kind of vindicated that position since, you know, the Cold War panic didn't really uh, live up to the expectation at the time. So yeah, things like that Rorschach, the uh, keep your rifle by your side song from Far Cry 5. Every time they try to make a piece of media that's like making fun of right-wing people, it's almost like we were starving for it and they just made it for us. And so we're like, right. oh, thanks, this is awesome. Yeah, that, that itself is a dangerous game, but it is funny how often that happens. Also, you know, Alan Moore probably shouldn't be talking about morality, but that's, a, that's an entirely different discussion. 
let's see. Uh, Thuggo says, are these uh, companies suffering from the fact that the that universities only churn out identity Marxists? I mean, yeah, that's certainly part of the problem, right? The workforce that they could even hire from is itself uh, already steeped in this ideology. It's already been selected for these characteristics uh, and their lack of, you know, IQ and other things. And so that's all going to get filtered down into those corporations. And there, there's a chicken and egg question, you know, is it, are, are they hiring these people because that's the only thing that's available from the universities? Are they selecting from these people because, or these people from the universities because that's what they want and the universities continue to train that? I tend to think that it's university first before it gets to the college, but other people have other opinions about that flow of causality. Let's see here. Glow in the Dark says, imagine a Marxist lying about their intentions. Yes. Uh, who, who's ever seen that before? Uh, Thursday says, uh, obligatory. How about them cowboys? All love, trust the plan. Yeah, it was it was enjoyable watching the the cowboys uh, kind of explode. Yeah, well, that's their that's what they do. The Lions though are doing great. You know, I'm like I'm totally a nomad. I'll support whatever team I have to, depending on my jurisdiction. But yeah, the Lions are killing it right now. So I, I take no offense to that. Uh, we've got John Galt here with just a super chat, and then he follows up with, "Do you guys want to have children? Need some skin in the game." in the future yep fam family is absolutely essential guys that's that's really all there is to it you can't can't really value the future unless you have a stake in it real all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up but john thank you once again for coming on it's been great talking to you guys make sure that you check out all of his hilarious content and then also please make sure that this is your first time on this channel you go ahead and subscribe make sure you're doing the notification thing as well you guys know that youtube is not letting you know when right wing channels go live so make sure that you go ahead and do that and of course if you want to uh listen to these broadcasts as podcasts make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Oren mcintyre show on your favorite podcast platforms thanks for watching guys and as always i'll talk to you next time